everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here and I'm at the Tavern. Is that what it's called? That's ben? where we are. I'm at the Tavern with Professor Benjamin Riley, who is one of the 27,000 people in the world who are my boss. <laughs> but I am, I hope, the least of his problems because I Ben... I didn't even know I was your boss. No, you are. Well, I'm here. <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> ben is, How the, exciting. is the dean of the Sir Walter Murdoch School of... Public Policy and International Affairs. Here at Murdoch University, which is where we're sitting. He's also an extremely distinguished political scientist, and I would say political sociologist too. And... One of the reasons I'm interested in having this chat today, Ben, apart from sucking up to one of my 27,000 conceptuaries, in all seriousness, is because you do empirical, conceptual, and theoretical work, and a very applied work, about democracy. About democracy. So, no doubt being a dean means that you're an anti-democrat, but <laughs> putting really. the burden of high office aside, talk about being a dean and notions of democracy. <clears throat> No, actually, that's a good question, and I'm glad you've asked it, because no one... No, you're right, most people think of deans as being uh, sort of benign dictators or autocrats of, of some sort, but I've found that actually uh, if you uh, unleash the... or give people the opportunity to play a role in the mm. governance of a school, mm. um, most academics, contrary to reputation, <laughs> um, are quite responsible in their use of uh, being given this this, mm. this influence and are quite happy to take it. Um, so, uh, you know, universities uh, cannot be governed in a top-down hierarchical manner. They just can't. And anyone who tries to govern a university that way quickly discovers going to fail. There is this expression, herding cats. Well, there is an expression, herding cats, but <clears throat> part of the, the, the nature of universities, I think, is that people are, scholarship is a creative process as well as being a purely rational, empirical one. And a lot of scholars are creative people, and uh, if you can find a way of actually uh, making use of that creativity, you get much better results than you would if you were trying to run things by being a control freak. So my own philosophy is um, hire good people, and the reason I came to Murdoch was because when I came out here, I realised there are very good people here, and we've brought in a few more good people. Hire good people, but then um, then step back. Let them go. Let them go. And, you know. We're in Western Australia, and I should say for context, <coughs> then, this doesn't have a huge distance but it's listened to in 50 countries. Mm -hmm and about 50% of listeners are in the United States, but also about 50% of listeners are non-native speakers of English. So a wee bit of context would be great about Western Australia, if that's Yes, right. Western Australia is a very interesting and very unusual part of Australia. For, for one thing, it's uh, a massive, ge geographically massive area. Isn't uh, Kalgoorlie, well, no, it's one of them the biggest electorate in the world? I, I, I think that's right. Yes, it's changed its name recently, okay. that electorate. But <clears throat> Western Australia is, is about the size of uh, continental Europe, um, but with a population of uh, just over 2 million, the vast majority of whom are concentrated in one city, Perth. So I, when I got here, one of the um, uh, politicians here described Western Australia to me as a city-state. 
which I thought was absurd when I first heard it, because, you know, when you think of a city-state, you think of Singapore, mm. uh, or, you know, some other or tiny... Milan. Yeah. In another era. I, I, indeed. Um, rather than this, this vast, uh, geographically uh, uh, disparate um, uh, a state. But in reality, it is a little bit like a city-state, because so much is concentrated down in one part of the, the state, and uh, the rest of the state is... is extremely underpopulated, I would say. Um, you have uh, a couple of hundred thousand people in an area that I said is about the same size as continental Europe. Two Texases for US. A couple of Texases, yes, <laughs> that's right. Sorry, US. Uh, <laughs> even bigger than Alaska. Which, uh, so, um, very interesting place. The other, the other interesting thing about it is that it's got a very unbalanced economy, driven very much by uh, one sector mining, and in, within that sector, uh, one mineral. Uh, iron ore, and all the talk here at the moment is of the falling iron ore price, which has a huge impact not only on individuals who might hold shares in mining companies and the mining companies themselves, but also on the state government's budget. So um, we're moving from a, a boom economy potentially into something that's starting to look like a bust economy here. Um, had very good times for the last few years, but we're not sure if it's going to so we, there's a boom-bust boom cycle historically in Western Australia. Well, you're a local originally. Just, uh, not originally from here, but I lived here. I spent a year here in the 80s and four year, three years in the 90s. Uh, and one of the things that's always been difficult is how to not become part of what's sometimes called the Dutch disease or the Gregory thesis, mm. which is an Australian economic thesis, the mm. Dutch disease is a description of whatever, 17th century That's right. problems. Yes. In other words, what happens when you have, and the same thing is sadly true in much of Africa at the moment, in Congo, in Nigeria, for example, an enormously in-demand natural resource. Mm. There is minimal incentive for economic development and capitalist formation elsewhere. That's right, and um, we are even a more classic uh, example of the Dutch disease because there is a, a more um, directly economic uh, influence in the Dutch disease as well, which was... Uh, Dutch disease actually, I think, came from the effects of North Sea oil on the Dutch economy oh, back in later? the 17th oh, century. Not, not 17th century, but 19th century. Well, there were certainly yeah. bubbles, chill yeah. bubbles and, 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 yeah. and other things. Yeah. But, but one of the impacts of that, this is pre-Euro days, was yeah. that it drove the Dutch currency up to sort of unaffordably high levels and made every other sector in the Dutch economy uncompetitive. Well, that's exactly what's happened here. Um, if you want to come and study here at Murdoch, which I hope some of you will, um, you will need to pay um, a similar amount to what you need to pay to go to a school in the United States, for example. Now, that's a very high level um, for a country like Australia. Um, if you try and manufacture here, uh, with a, an extremely uh, highly valued dollar, uh, it's very difficult to compete internationally. But, but things are changing, aren't they? You mentioned this coming bust. I got off the plane on Sunday, and the dude who drove me in the cab to my hotel, sorry to give this kind of ridiculous anecdote from the you know frequent polluter class, but regardless, he was a South Asian guy, and he was, he'd been talking to another South Asian taxi driver when they were waiting for very important people to you know, belly flop into their arms. This guy had been a cook in the iron ore precincts of northern Western Australia and had been earning $100,000 a year. Now, as of you know, three weeks ago, he's back here earning $20,000, $25,000 a year driving a car. 
Mm. Yes, well, um, one of the uh, elements of, of our economy is that most of the big resource projects are a long way from where people want to live. They're in extremely inhospitable areas, and I mean really inhospitable, as in unlike the United States, when these mining projects are over, there probably won't be a town that lasts after them, right? The town, everything has to be flowing in and then flowing out, or the labour has to be flowing in and flowing out. So um, people have been earning $100,000 for a cook. There was a story in the Wall Street Journal two years ago about a completely unskilled young man who uh, was going, uh, was actually involved in the mining itself, but unskilled, earning $250,000 a year. That created thousands of applications from the United States for, for people who read this story to come and do the same, because that was just such an insane amount of money. Um, but uh, the miners were, were earning such big amounts that they were able to pay that. Uh, those days appear to be over. Appear to be over. So you've, there's an interesting cohort effect here, Then There are these kids who didn't go to college who earned enough money, because there's nothing to spend money on in the places where they were living, to buy a home without a mortgage, and now they're 23. <laughs> what on earth are they going to do? They've got a home, but they don't know anything. They Hopefully can't do come anything. Hopefully they'll study with they, us home. That's what they should be doing. So, this school that you're the dean of, this is a pretty new outfit, isn't it? It is, and what we are trying to do is to set up something like a, a US-style policy school, um, as in, half, as in, as uh, in the Kennedy School or SICE uh, or SEPA or these various other um, big name uh, schools of public policy. So Johns Hopkins is School, yeah. of, uh, what school is of Advanced International Advanced Studies, Studies, where actually I used to teach. Right. Um, and A man uh, who survived Baltimore. Uh, no, no, because it's based in Washington, that school, oh, even though it? it's, it's part of Johns Hopkins. Oh, no, it's on Massachusetts Avenue. It's no wonder nice. they get all that. National Institutes of Health money, they yes, got right. the presence, that's strong right. arm people. So we're trying to set up something like that in Western Australia, and uh, that's significant for a couple of reasons. First of all, there aren't very many of these schools anywhere in Australia. There's one in Canberra and uh, one in Sydney. And you taught at the one at the Australian National University. Yes, I did. And there's certainly nothing like it in, in Perth, anywhere in Western Australia. So... Uh, it seemed a, 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 a logical thing to try to do, but also a slightly experimental thing because most of these schools are based in big cities or in hub cities or in capital cities. And Perth is, is getting to be a big city, but it's not a hub and it's not a capital. Um, we compete with schools like the um, uh, 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 Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy in Singapore um, directly for students as well as competing um, uh, for students in Australia. So that's one, one aspect of it. The second aspect was we have a lot of good scholars here who work on politics, uh, international affairs, public policy, and it just seemed a no-brainer to put yeah. them all together yeah. and see if we could actually set up our own policy school. And thirdly, because Perth has developed so quickly over the last few years, partly because of all this mining money, um, there is a lot more interest in international engagement and big policy questions than maybe there was before. A thousand people a week have been moving to Perth uh, for the last three or four years. Is that a thousand so? people every week. And so the city is transforming very quickly into a much more internationally focused city and a, a much more important city in the context of the Australian economy 
40% of all of Australia's exports come from Western Australia. And, um, you know, what was once, I, I, I think it's fair to say, a relatively peripheral part of Australia, yeah. is now a very central part of Australia, especially in economic terms, but also in strategic and security terms, because so much of Australia's national wealth is actually physically bound up with mining industry, the oil and gas industry, and most of that is here in Western Australia. Western Australia and Queensland are really the animating forces of this resources boom for the country, I think it's fair to say. Yes, uh, they are. Um, Queensland uh, has, well, all of Australia has a lot of natural resources. There's coal, there's a, a huge amount of natural gas, but the, the, the substance that uh, Western Australia in particular has written on is iron ore, which is quite a common Substance. It's not not not, no, not it's easy to get at. It's easy to get at, and we are close to the markets. And yeah. it, it, the very interesting thing, actually, Toby, is that we have big, very efficient miners. But if you look at the margins involved in terms of why is Australia um, using uh, booming uh, so much on the back of this product, uh, one of the reasons is we are a day or two shipping closer to China. Sure than anywhere else. And and the margins are actually being made yeah. in things like shipping costs. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah. Uh, one of the things in areas that I look at in the production of television sets has seen a return to the importance of Mexico versus China and Vietnam because as... For the United what, States. For, well, not only, but that's where most televisions are bought. Mm. Or, sorry, that's the country that buys the most television sets, let's say. As wages have increased very dramatically in China, and to a significant extent in Vietnam, and wages have diminished in Mexico, the advantage that Mexico has by being the same landmass has seen transportation costs be the difference. Yes, and NAFTA. Well, NAFTA helps, but even the North American Free Trade Agreement um, in its early period saw Mexico become, Tijuana was called the television capital of the world. Mm. But by 2006, China and Vietnam were exporting equal amounts of television sets. Mm. And now they're not. Mexico is thriving, driving ahead because of these questions. It's, it's, look, it's a fascinating issue. I, 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 I know there are even some areas of the, uh, of the United States itself in the South where labor costs are now competitive with China yeah. in some areas. Yeah. And so... Uh, factories that had left and set up in China are, are now starting to move back. So um, nothing is static. No, you see Apple uh, now interested in opening or starting not its own factories but through Foxconn its <laughs> appalling supplier right. setting up factories in the United States. And there is an argument made by the Wall Street Journal in Terralia that within about five years because of technology questions and logistics questions manufacturing will be really on the return to the United States. Mm. In other words, we're finally catching up with Germany. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, uh, I've never bought the, the idea of, uh, of sort of U.S. decline. Um, uh, I mean, apart from the fact that it's such an incredibly wealthy country and such high levels of human capital, it has such an unusual economy because parts of, an economy, of its economy are 
uh, at the height of the first world advantage, particularly R&D, design, the great universities, parts of the economy are really like a third world country. Much of the country is. And, you, and but that's, that makes it pretty sad if you're one of the individuals who's stuck in the third world part of the economy. But from a global perspective, it gives the United States tremendous advantages yeah. in terms of competing, yeah. for example. A deregulated labour market with a crumbling and pitiful welfare state would be another way of describing it. But it's, it, when it comes to labour costs, it means it's cheap. Yeah. That's really what we're talking about. Whereas so. here, of course, um, when I buy a glass of tea, a cup of tea, I'm paying the same as I would for a T-shirt. Yes. Well, I, I'm just paid at a student bar $10 for a beer. So. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and apparently I, I should consider myself lucky. I paid fourteen dollars the other night at a flasher place in town. You know, while we're on it's this, tough at the top when you're in these decadent <laughs> positions, folks. I was talking to our uh, our state treasurer at an event recently, who mentioned that in his electorate there is the world's most expensive McDonald's. Not most expensive in terms of how much you have to pay for a Big Mac, um, but from McDonald's HQ, they rank what they have to pay per uh, per, labor, per unit of labour, and that particular restaurant costs McDonald's Corp more than any restaurant in any country in the world, apparently. Is that the way the franchising works? Really? Well, this is what he told me, so I'll... Well, I can I'll, imagine I'll, the labour cost might be, <coughs> the unit cost might be higher, but whether McDonald's HQ is actually paying for that... Mm. I doubt if McDonald's HQ were paying for it, but they're certainly tracking it. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. So there you go. A, a suburban Perth McDonald's, uh, in terms of uh, labour costs, uh, is most expensive in the world. Now, I don't think, if we were having this podcast in a year's time, Toby, I suspect it won't be anymore. <laughs> now, let, let's get on, now that we've had a throat-clearing exercise on solving the problems of the Western Australian economy, a subject of great interest to us and about five other people <laughs> in the world. Else, yes. <laughs> but, but let's talk about something that everybody's interested in and that you're an expert on, which is democracy. And I'm thinking here not just of the democracy that you're experimenting with and experiencing as a dean and letting people fly, but a wider question of democracy. And let me introduce this with a quick story, if I may. I've just been asked to write, I've just been commissioned to write, and I've just written overnight, a piece about the representation, very negatively, of the Venezuelan government in a US espionage drama TV show from last week. Uh, within moments of this coming out, the Venezuelan Minister for Popular Communications and Freedom, or whatever, tweeted, which is what a press release is today, uh, appalling representation of the Venezuelan revolution is disgusting. There's a public inquiry mounted at her direction by the telecommunications regulator. Mm. And there's a lot of discussion across Latin America about this because there's a rather gratuitous segment in this episode where there is reference to the Venezuelan government that implies it's a terrorist state. The answer that the Chavistas give all the time is we have open and free elections. The president was elected by popular vote, Nicolás Maduro, therefore we're a democracy. Now the reason for the long prolegament to the question is, I think democracy is much more than a free and open election. Is it, or am I being naive? I think a democracy means open media and open universities. You tell me. 
Well, Toby, this is a this is a vexed uh, and difficult question. Um, for most people, democracy means far more than free and fair elections. It means human rights. It means uh, ability to organise, uh, to speak. Uh, in some cases, it means a good society. In some cases, it means freedom from fear and want and so on. The problem is that the word is uh, has expanded in, in terms of its, its meaning so much that it, 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 at some point it, it becomes almost meaningless, you know, everyone's in favour of it. And, <laughs> it's like um, motherhood and apple pie. It, it is like motherhood and apple pie and, you know, um, as you're aware, North Korea is actually the people's democratic republic. Damn it. So, right. So, so the word, um, I think, is in danger or is more than in danger, does get... Uh, uh, overused and used in ways that, 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 that render it meaningless. Now, as a result of that, political scientists have gone in the other direction. Most political scientists have adopted this incredibly narrow definition of democracy, which you alluded to. Which is the Venezuelan <coughs> right, the Venezuelan government's <laughs> definition. Well, and so political scientists and the Chavistas are in bed together. That's a, that's a funny well, outcome. You know, get me out of that room quickly, is all I can say. But it's true. So most political scientists these days, particularly the more empirically inclined political scientists, follow a, a, what you might call a minimalist, def minimalist definition right. of democracy. But there is one big difference between the way the political scientists would use this minimalist, electoral, electorally-led definition and the Chavistas, and that is that the key, the real key to the, the idea of democracy under this definition is can you get rid of a bad government? Can you throw out a government through the electoral process? Now, in Venezuela, uh, there are big question marks about whether you really can, just as there are big question marks in Singapore or Malaysia, which hold uh, 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 relatively uh, uh, free but not fair elections, um, and which there's never been a change of government. Um, conversely, uh, we've just come from a seminar with, on India. You have countries like India, which clearly are democratic. Clearly you can throw out a bad government. But there are real questions as to, well, what are they getting out of democracy? They've had 60 years of democracy. Corruption levels are very high and so on. So I'm a believer in democracy as, as well as a scholar of democracy. But I must say, as a political scientist, I tend to end up more at the minimalist end of the spectrum and really do focus on the question of, well, if you've got a government or if you've got a, an individual uh, politician who you don't like, can you get rid of them or are you well, stuck with them? Can I ask you then about the judiciary <coughs> in this context? Because one of the problems with a place like Venezuela is that there is not an independent judiciary. But as we all know, the world's economy might have fallen apart if FDR hadn't stacked the Supreme Court in the 1930s. But an independent judiciary, a separation of powers doctrine, it seems to me, is also part of democracy. It's not popular democracy, because it's about checks and balance on populist and popular will. But isn't that part of it too? That the judiciary should be independent, actually, of the current democratically elected government, at least relatively so, or no? <laughs> can, you, can you come that far with me, Ben? I, I think I can go that far with you, Toby. But the, the difficulty here is that we start getting into all the uh, uh, 
uh, empirical anomalies. I mean, you just mentioned the case of the United States. Well, the courts are appointed, I mean, uh, by the politicians. Or in some cases, they're elected. So the, the judges are like politicians. We all remember what happened with uh, George W. Bush's uh, electoral first electoral victory in Florida. Where yeah, sorry, the, what was that again? <laughs> remember? <laughs> we, we put that out of our Actually, mind. there's a hanging chat, I think, just <laughs> over there on the ground. Yeah, and that was really a contest to see which political party dominated which institution, and it worked its way all the way up through the institutions of American politics, and it ended up with the Supreme Court, and the party that had chosen the Supreme Court got the result they wanted. So would we say America is not a democracy? No, I would not argue that. Therefore, can we say these uh, pristine well, courts are essential? Well, maybe not. That's an inadequate separation of parts. <clears throat> well, inadequate. Let's, let's think of the Australian context. We don't really have separation of powers in, in Australia. Maybe not the way the term is used in America. We're a Westminster system. So the government, the executive, and the parliament are fused together. One comes out of the other. In the United States, the two are completely separate. Well, we do a, have a separate court system. It's, it's a Washminster system. It's a Washminster system. Because it has a Senate modelled on the United States. We took a lot of things from the United States when we federated. Indeed, we were very lucky that the United States founding fathers have thought, thought through some of these issues before our guys had to, because our, our guys weren't as smart. They were quite moronic, uh, by contrast. They, well, I mean, <laughs> there was this, no Jefferson. <clears throat> there was no Jefferson. There was no Ben Franklin. Uh, Not even There was Madison. no Adams. Well, if you look at our history, um, our founding fathers pulled the wrong rein, took the wrong route on virtually all the big questions. <laughs> White Australia. They didn't want to. They didn't want to be an immigrant society. Um, totally rejected the idea of free trade. Totally rejected the idea of engaging with their own neighbourhood in Asia. Decided to try and set up themselves as being an even more British than Britain uh, colony on that side. Uh, you know. Let's put Canberra somewhere where no one wants to live. Uh, uh, well, the idea the was that the Russians couldn't invade That's it. right. So it was driven by fear. And that's really my point. That a lot of our, our in Australia, our founding fathers were driven by uh, fear. Whereas the Americans were driven by, uh, were fortunate enough to have a, a grand intellectual sort of voyage of discovery when they started thinking about how to bring a continental-sized nation together after a revolution, and they came up with the idea of federalism, which which we, we copied, and uh, luckily they did, otherwise I'm not sure where Australia would be at well, the moment. Western Australia would probably have seceded, that's what they tried to in 1934, it had a plebiscite actually in favour of it did, it did, but and the way that situation was solved was that the federal government, I think, instructed the, the, the British monarch, the Queen, uh, just to ignore the uh, submission from Western Australia, which they Oh, did. I didn't know that. Yes, I think that's how it goes. I think that's how it goes. That would have been George V, 1944. Thank you, Toby. That's, that's okay, old uh, boy. Just... <laughs> well done. <laughs> Pathetic area well done. of empirical yes. superiority. Well done. But in all seriousness, I, I think there's great merit in the argument about democracy being defined in this minimalist way. But democracy can't be once every few years. We've got a situation in Britain at the moment, as you may be aware, a 
audience, listeners may be aware, we're speaking in early September 2014, that in a couple of weeks Scotland is going to vote for possible secession. So what the British government is now talking about, having changed the gap between British elections to a legislative five-year one, extending that via another act of parliament for both houses by another year, on the grounds that if the Scots vote yes for secession, then the, which would happen, it is said, in 2016, then the 2015 election would be decided by people who within a year would not be citizens of that country and whose electorates would not be in that country and whose electorates compromise, uh, uh, account for maybe a sixth or a fifth of the nation. So that's just one little story. But there's an argument to be said in more general terms that democracy cannot be every two years or three years or five years, whatever the period is between elections. Mm. Democracy well, must be 24-7. Yes. Well, I, I, I mean, absolutely. I, I have to say, I think you might find that's a little bit of scaremongering on the part of the anti-independence voices uh, in relation to Scotland. I'll be very surprised if the United Kingdom starts uh, postponing uh, uh, their elections to that to that length. Uh, but, but, but we shall see. Look, it's true what you say, but uh, the, the problem of democracy 24-7, I think Oscar Wilde was the man who put his finger on this. Uh, he was talking about the problem of socialism. The problem with socialism, he said, was it took up too many evenings. <laughs> All those meetings you I had think to Oscar go to. had a few other ideas. Yeah, exactly. Oscar, Oscar had other, uh, 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 other activities. Um, and that is a real problem today. There is a great level of disengagement and apathy and um, um, you know, boredom, frankly, with the established political process, the formal political institutions of democracy that we're talking about. Um, we've had some very... I think quite alarming opinion polls uh, here in Australia recently, where a majority of young people, um, uh, when given the opportunity to ask whether they'd prefer to live in a democracy or a dictatorship, say it doesn't matter. They, 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 it would make no difference to them. Now, I think that's just a, a huge kind of uh, warning sign, um, and I don't think anyone who had actually been unfortunate enough to live in a dictatorship would ever make uh, that sort of statement. But here in this sort of very benign and uh, slightly uh, sleepy kind of political culture, that's what uh, uh, a majority of young people are saying. I had no idea. I was on a bus here <coughs> two days ago when two guys, one of them Aboriginal, were extolling Hitler's virtues, saying that he went mad and then things went downhill, but basically he was right about asserting the importance of local people. Now, of course, what's ironic about that is that part of the Hitlerian justification for the Second World War was the rights of non-resident Germans. It's actually one of the beginnings of the idea of ethnic minority rights. That's right. There was not the Germans in uh, Poland, the right. Germans in uh, Czechoslovakia. Yes, right. that's right. Well, look, I, 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 <laughs> so I know, ridiculous. That's a bit of a shocker, the, isn't the, it? The Aboriginal in favour of Hitler. It's so ridiculous, but I, 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 I think it just highlights the fact not that, um, uh, you know, there's a movement uh, in favour of uh, sort of Nazism amongst our Indigenous peoples, but just the levels of sort of ignorance and uh, Well, you know, during the war, the Australian equivalent of the Nazis and the British Union fascists with the Australia First movement, 
And like as parts of the Communist Party and parts of the Anglican Church, they were in favour of Aboriginal land rights. Is that right? Because there is an indigenous idea within National Socialism that's very, very important. I don't wish to support it for a second, but that indigeneity ethos was crucial to the Australia First movement. Yeah, and of course, if you start talking about the, the genuine sons of the soil in Australia, you end up talking about the <laughs> Aboriginal people, and uh, yeah. I, I, there's no getting away from, from, from that reality, but um, that's fascinating, Toby. I didn't know that. One of the areas that you work on is East Asia, Ben. Tell us a bit about citizenship and democracy in the particular domains where you've worked, studied, taught. Well, East Asia is fascinating when it comes to democracy because uh, on the one hand you have this huge, hugely significant rise of China under authoritarian rule which has really um, challenged a lot of the established um, maybe lazy theories of democracy that most political scientists like myself held to. The big one was that as you get richer and you get a growing middle class you'll start to democratise. Actually, that isn't happening in China. Um, There were some very tentative steps towards village-level elections, a little bit of a loosening in the political system in the 1990s. But over the last decade, if anything, the political system has become more centralised, more authoritarian, and uh, not more repressive. You can do and say pretty much anything in China except talk about having competition and an alternative to the Communist Party. If you start talking about that, you are in deep, deep trouble. Um, so you've got this one example of an of a, 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 a extremely successful and economic state that is not democratising at all. On the other hand, you have cases like Indonesia. Indonesia's just elected a uh, former furniture... Uh, uh, salesman slash um, uh, business owner, very humble man, Joko Widodo, as their next president, uh, someone from completely outside the mainstream uh, uh, elite, uh, had an election with 150 million people voting, uh, had a transfer of power, no violence, no riots in the streets, not, 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 not one not one death in a country of 240 uh, million people, and, in, and of course a Muslim country as well, the world's largest Muslim country. So just an incredible uh, uh, contradiction to all the theories out there that say that there are some kinds of cultures and some kinds of religions that are incompatible with democracy. Um, what we've seen in Indonesia is a country that's gone from authoritarian rule under a succession of generals to uh, just in a decade again, uh, what looks to be a pretty well-consolidated democracy where politicians are now talking about things like, you know, how do we get uh, free hospital care for the greatest number of people or how do we improve public transport? It's real sort of bread and butter So what's issue. the magic factor? Because if we go back to the democratisation of Indonesia, the New York Times, as I recall, was quoting Clifford Gertz, the late anthropologist, famous figure in studying Indonesia, was saying, well, this will never happen. It's not possible, it's probably not even desirable. What's the magic factor that means political scientists and economists are being, it seems, proven wrong about, on the one hand, economic development and liberalism as per China, 
and on the other hand, the possibilities of democracy in the Western sense under Islam in the case of Indonesia? Well, that's the $64 question, Toby, and Only I'm, not sure, I'm not sure, you know, I mean, I think if you had the, 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 the genuine answer to that, you'll, you know, you should get a Nobel Prize. Um, in, when it comes to Indonesia, uh, I think people like Gertz underestimated the pluralism of the culture, underestimated how um, difficult Indonesia was to actually uh, run under an authoritarian system. Problem with authoritarian systems is they require quite a high degree of state capacity. Hi, Sarah. No, we're doing a podcast. Come and join us. Take a seat. Take a seat. We are. Come. No, no, sit down. Sit, please. You can join in. Yeah, I know. We're going to come over. We're going to come over. Hello. Hi. You guys know each other? I am. Oh, well, because I knew him when he had more hair, less of a tummy, and a black beard. A black moustache. I saw that. It's real. Yeah. 1981. Oh, yeah. So, 81. yeah, 81. I'm just pontificating so, about Indonesia. But can you say who you are for the purposes of the podcast? Because I don't edit, so you've got to be in it properly. Okay, I'm Sarah Pratis, and I'm here at Murdoch University. And you're an incredibly important Pro Vice Chancellor, something or other. Pro Vice Chancellor for Learning and Teaching. For learning and Teaching. Can I, Sarah, go and buy you a drink? while you and Ben chat for the podcast about Indonesia and democratization. We'll, we will wing it. Or whatever it is you wing. Sure we will so wing it. What would you like? Uh, I've already got a drink, actually. <laughs> you can get me a beer, though. I'll get you a beer. Can yeah. I go and grab your drink for you? Yeah, but I've got my bags and everything, so don't worry, because I can't. I can only drink so much, and then I have to wait an hour or something for really? it to drive. Oh, really? You're two ginger beers. <laughs> oh, I'm, on the, I'm on the bus, so it's easy. All right, well... Where? I'll be back in a second. Okay. I'll get you a beer, but can I get right, you a bag and drink? No, Bring no, it's okay. they'll, they'll be okay. They'll be, all right, all right. Back in a second. What's your beer choice? Um, I'm just having a. Uh, what is this? Actually, no, I'll tell you what. There's a. I'll get a. Uh, just give me a half. That's all I need. A half. A Ruby Tuesday. Ruby Tuesday? Yeah, half of Ruby Tuesday. I once heard Melanie sing with a buy Ruby Tuesday. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah. Cirrhosis of the liver. Good memories. <laughs> All right, back in a second. So keep talking about citizenship. All right. I, well, I tell you what, because we're um, we're continuing this uh, podcast, and those Sorry, of you who are getting a little bit of West Australian wildlife behind us. Let me um, uh, ask our uh, our new people, PBC or DVC, PBC Sarah, about uh, her innovations when it comes to learning and teaching at the university, because I know you've got a big agenda. Yeah, so uh, my research area is in serious games and gamification, so I'm very keen on looking at um, social interactive learning and digital media and digital learning approaches. So that's my research area. Uh, in terms of what we want to do at Murdoch, we want to, I suppose, engage the staff more with uh, interactive learning approaches uh, build on the expertise that is there already in the area around kind of real world learning um, and with kind of a focus on employability and, and being work ready and you know, kind of working much more closely with industry as well. And is this going to be in 
particularly IT areas or engineer, or is this across the board for all disciplines? I mean, each area, digital area, has got quite different pedagogic models underpinning it. So it's not that there's going to be a one-size-fits-all. There's going to be different kinds of elements that we will focus on in different schools. So, for example, in your area, obviously there's particular uh, pedagogies that you're using, and we want to enhance that with digital technologies rather than you know, throwing the baby out of the bathwater. So it's kind of building on the expertise that's there, but enhancement and building around kind of activity-led learning and social-led learning. Yeah, I've, been, I've been thinking about this because we have a lot of um, intensive uh, courses being run. So we have some courses that run over a semester, but we have some that just run on weekends, over, you know, a, a month. Uh, we have some that just run over a couple of days in some cases. And I just wonder how, with those sorts of very different models, uh, we have one that runs in the Parliament of Western Australia, where yeah. the students are actually based in the Parliament. Um, you know, as you say, there's, there's not a one-size-fits-all yeah, model. Really um, well, I think, I suppose the thing is, it's kind of, you know, what can technology bring? I mean, if, if something is already good as it is, well, we don't want to kind of mess with that if it's good. But if there's something that can add something or if there's new audiences that we can reach with that type of uh, learning content and product, well, you know, I suppose there's a kind of onus on us as well to open access and, and to open that, that learning capability out to more people. We ran a, a, a course this year where students had to did most of their uh, discussions with visiting lecturers over Skype. We Skyped in various people, Skyped in a Google executive at one point, and then had to, for assessment, they had to get a blog published and do other kinds of things in the in the sort of social media world. And one of the things we found was that there was quite a lot of criticism of that particular unit from some of the other scholars who said, well, look, this isn't scholarly enough. This isn't, this isn't really a, you know, what a university course should be. Maybe they were right. Uh, have you had that kind of... Uh... Yeah, I think there is quite a bit of... I mean, I know with online learning, it's often kind of considered a kind of, almost like a kind of poor, poor relative cousin, yes. Yeah, yes. To, to the kind of the main thing, which is you know, gold standard, which is face-to-face -face learning. And, you know, I think in terms of, you know, the massification of education, you know, we are in a different place now, and, you know, costs of education are rising and you know the need to reach more audiences is there and I think those kinds of pressures are kind of moving us more towards online learning. But I'm quite a believer in blended learning. I think that's there's a lot of studies that have proven that blended is more effective than online or face to face separately. Mm. So um, and the studies that we've done have actually shown that game based learning is more effective than traditional learning, which is quite interesting. Um, so there are a lot of ways that we can sort of enrich and add and enhance learning. And I think that's what, for me, it's all about. It's enriching that student experience and you know, making it more engaging and more special. So, <coughs> for my benefit, at least, can you give us an example when you say game-based learning? I, I come from the social scientist, so I think of sort of uh, coordination games where people are given opportunities to maybe make some money or lose money depending on whether they coordinate or solve a prisoner's dilemma. But I'm sure you're talking about a much broader range of, of games, right? So, what, what, give yeah. me some examples. Oh, that's really true. And there's a very, very broad continuum for me. Uh, so there's things like mobile apps, so they could be quite small quizzes. Um, then you've got kind of syndicated game content, uh, like um, Minecraft. Uh, then you've got kind of more um, mixed reality type, type games, where you've got an element of you know, physical world interaction and, and online gaming. 
Um, then you've got um, challenge-based games. And then you kind of move all the way up to immersive 3D interactive games. So there's just such a wide array. And of course, gamification is really just kind of pulling out the elements of games, so badging or competition or leaderboards, which is actually a very kind of easy thing to do. And uh, if you look at the Khan Academy, for example, you know they have something like 4.4 million downloads per day, and they're running that on 49 staff. And they're using a lot of gamification, so they've got a whole kind of badging kind of system that they've got there, including kind of challenge badges as well. And, you know, it's kind of really transforming learning. And it's kind of that flipped classroom model where, you know, you do get a lot of your resources online, online and access them any time, and then you use that face-to-face component to support more uh, problem-based approaches. So, so, I mean, you mentioned games like Minecraft. What, in, in terms of a scholarly learning and a discipline, where would that fit? It's being used actually in quite weird ways for things like uh, learning kind of team building skills and uh, it's been used in kind of engineering and it's been used in school education quite a lot. So a lot of these tools are being used in quite disruptive ways as they call it. I don't see it as disruptive but you know it's it's quite creative ways. Um, So I think that these kinds of approaches can really add a lot. and I think the thing is, particularly in the, in the lecture theatres, you know, kids are not as engaged as they were when we were. They're playing we games while they are. people are out the front doing chalk so, and talk. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. if you've got apps where you can engage them and get them involved, so they're using their devices, you know, as part of the kind of collaborative process of learning in the space, rather than to check their email or to play World of Warcraft or whatever, um, you know, that's got to be a good thing. And I think it is about student engagement, really, for me, at the heart of it, you know. How do we engage the students? Because mm. Generation Z are about to come into the universities. The millennials have proved quite challenging for us to deal with them. So, you know, how do we actually rise to that challenge of dealing with, with a new generation of learners that are used to games, they're used to mobile devices? Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's what they like. We're, we're just podcasting away here, Toby. If that's okay. So, I, I mean, I, you're, all, you're both right. about to become part of an app anyway. Yeah. Because <laughs> There's an app for this. Yeah, so. what is this, by the way? <laughs> what is I just came to thing? say hello. Uh, no, sorry, sorry. I, I, I have a podcast called Cultural Studies, and Ben very kindly consented to appear in it, and you did without really consenting, but you were a good sport. And it's on iTunes and also on the web, but I've designed a couple of apps with somebody else for Android and iPhone. And they're really conversations with interesting people. Uh, as well as boring people, but none of those are present today, <laughs> needless to say. So, very good of you. Writers, singers, poets, even Trotskyists, dramaturgs, activists, but, and lots of scholars, and done a couple of hundred now. And they're opportunistic in that I meet somebody who's interesting and I say, Would you do this? And we've even had quite a few where people like you have. Simply appeared and participated in it. Actually, I mean, this, this, it, I, I think this subject is you know, ripe for a podcast, really, because yes. it, it yeah. is the, the sort of big challenge we all face. I was just thinking when you were talking, Sarah, I mean, we, you know, the experience of, I was teaching in the States um, uh, until a year ago. Not in Baltimore. In Washington, D.C. <laughs> oh, and I love DC. every, I, I got used to every single student having their Apple uh, MacBook, sitting there, tapping away while I was, you know, out the front of the class. Now, half of them, I hope, were 
somehow maybe taking notes or doing something. Yeah. I'm sure the yeah. other half were off doing something completely different. It's a radical change for for an academic because it's a, it's a different world, world in the world well, that we taught. Some, some of my friends uh, in the U.S. have responded to this with two strategies. One is to forbid students using the word like. <laughs> than to say, I like that, because that's also that part be, of the issue, part right. of the vocab. Yeah. The second is to say, no electronic devices in the lecture. Actually getting them to turn these things off. But is that, is that really a solution? It's funny because I was interviewed today by a student, in a stu for a student paper, who was um, <clears throat> asking me about these issues as well, um, because apparently in Notre Dame, the nursing group had said basically, like, we're not going to allow any kind of digital devices. So he was really questioning me about what I thought about it. And I just don't know if you can kind of turn the tide back on the fit classroom. Right. Because I just think there is something different inherently in those generations about how they're learning. Yeah. And they're very extrinsically motivated. So, you know, they've got a different set of drivers from the ones that we had. I mean, we, we sat in, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but we sat quite happily in the lecture theatres and watched them. I mean, maybe some of them would have been a little bit boring, but I was quite attentive and just listening but, 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 and so on. But today, it's the new uh, One of the downsides, um, you know, new technology has done many things for us, but it has also destroyed our attention span. It seems to me, all of us, and the younger generation, even more so, probably. And um, I, I, I take your point. I mean, how many, uh, how many people are just going to sit there through a hour and a half lecture? These days. I fall asleep in my own lectures. Yeah, I mean, I'm <laughs> up there standing, and suddenly I realise, like Thomas uh, Jefferson, uh, uh. who didn't lie down to sleep, but like a horse, I'm actually taking catching forty winks while still talking. That's quite a talent. It's a bit of a shocker, right? You turn up half your brain. Their eyes open, we won't, you know, we won't put this respect. on the podcast. <laughs> we'll, we'll scrub the podcast. No, there's none of that. Now, is it pronounced Sara or Sarah? Sarah. It is Sara. Yeah, Sara. You just referred to this. University, which is in downtown Fremantle, not far from where we are. That's a private university, I guess affiliated with the Catholic school um, in Indiana, oh, Notre Dame. You're right? talking about, oh, I yeah. you're talking about the one in Indiana. Right? Yeah. So, it, well, it's the same. He's not right? from there, is he? You're not from here, though, are you? From Perth. Oh, well, I've spent oh, four are. years of my life in Perth. Oh, you're here. Wait, do you live here now? No, I live in London. But I, I've lived most of the last 20 years in the United States. So Notre Dame has this outpost here. And I, I didn't realize that you were saying the nursing school has apparently prohibited the use of these devices. They're talking so about So they're talking about it. And what, they have in other universities as well. And apparently when they, in places where they have done it, initially there's been a big backlash to it. But then after a while people got used to it. So it's possible to go back, but would you would you go back? I suppose is the question. So you're, I should say, Sarah, as pro vice chancellor, this is one of the top, top, top senior management jobs in the university. And your ta your task, it seems to me, she's a what, very important. What I'm guessing, <laughs> this is the most important person the podcast has ever had within its serried ranks. <laughs> Your, ta your task, I suppose, is to say the genie's out of the bottle. We're not interested in the bottle. We want to see where the genie's going. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because I've got this games background and, you know, I'm very pro-educational technology, you know, right. my sympathy is more towards the flipped classroom model. Because I do think, I mean, there is a place for, for lectures, I believe, but I do think that actually people do need that interactive yeah. kind of 
experience, interactive experience, in order to really learn about you know problem-based learning and um, critical thinking skills and and so on, design thinking, and you know these are the kinds of things that are really better supported in a small group, in a collaborative working environment. Um, I'm also very supportive of kind of more challenge-based learning approaches as well. So where rather than having curriculum, we, we kind of focus on a, a kind of more um, a kind of a broader set of challenges, for example, that maybe confront society or that have global relevance. Um, and I'm very much in favour of kind of real-world experience, and I think learning, experiential learning, and I think that's something that Murdoch is actually very good at. Um, but I think there is a place for traditional learning as well. I don't think, you know, why can't we have it all? Do you know what I mean? I don't think it is an either-or situation. I think we can have it all, but I think we do have to kind of respond to students. So if, if they genuinely are falling asleep or playing World of Warcraft in, in lectures... And who knows what Ben's doing with his know. phone as we speak? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm an example of the problem. We've lost I'm an example him. of the problem. We've lost uh, him. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. I think it is the, the point that Ben was making about attention span. You know, I think that there is an issue around that. But I think it is also about extrinsic and, motivation and, you and, know, and, and what, what you're accustomed to and, you know, those kinds of things different, are in different disciplines? Like yeah, we were just talking about. That. Oh, were you okay? Well, I don't want to go too much over what you've already done then. But in something like economics and political science, you think about game theory as traditionally conceived as being very well suited, for example, to playing games. When you're talking about big animal veterinary science, when you're in there with the cow. But you can, yeah. Is it different or I, is it the same? If you look at the military, and we're talking about because I was speaking at a conference actually last night at 10 p.m. Florida, actually a game tech conference, which was with military people as well. But I mean, if you take how they use simulations, for example, they tend to use it as in because it's very expensive to do, you know, real training. So kind of simulations yeah. are kind of step before you get to real training. And, you know, I see game based approaches very much in that. The same kind of with theme. the big animals. You know, you're not necessarily going to have the actual real experience, but. You can have that stepping into so, a real experience. By the way, you know the other, when they said it's very expensive to do these activities in real time, in real places, one of the reasons it's so expensive is that lots of the places that allow the United States to engage in physical material, military gaming, no longer allow that after the George W. Bush invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. So the cost are partly because the number of places that are available for free, thank you, come and take us over, Mr. Empire, the number's diminished. But in any event, yeah. It's quite I mean, they did some, uh, it's kind of going off message a bit, but uh, somebody was on the other table over there. There is no message. About um, just drones, drones and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, there was a study which found that um, actually they were using game players quite a lot to operate drones and so on. And they did some studies and they did find that, you know, that, Kids that had played a lot of um, shoot 'em up games were much more likely to press the button yeah. than were the people right. who hadn't, because there was a kind of element of distanciation and, and desensitisation. Well, well, the if fact you're that what they're doing has Florida an impact. Flying a drone over Afghanistan, which is understand how it works, yeah. which is kind of interesting. Yeah. But also it relates yeah. to some of the issues yeah. that, that happened with the people who dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, some of whom had terrible times later because they thought they were so far away from the devastation they wrought that there would be no impact but over time yeah, there actually there was. was yeah yeah it's just really interesting isn't it well, during the second world war as well they, yeah there was a lot of psychology around them a lot of the guys who were uh, bomber pilots kind of a lot of them said oh well you know we always dropped our bombs in the in the sea and then you think well if they all drop their bombs in the sea 
How come all How our grandparents died? What yeah. happened to all of this yeah, stuff that's, that's, that's right. gone yeah. now? So there is a psychology. I think it is a kind of denial as well, maybe, and a distanciation because you don't see it. You're mm. not really impacted on. So mm. What's the word? Distanciation. Is that the word? Yeah, that's, I think you need some aesthetic re-educational <laughs> thing. We're going to send you. We're going to send you off to the fields to get some Marxist cultural theory into you. This is good. Austromania, <laughs> making strange, right? This Something is this like is that. this is good. I'm going to use that one tonight. Maybe we should stop while we're on it. <laughs> <laughs> how long are your podcasts? Oh, sorry, we've got, do you want? We've got an hour. We've got. He's probably got enough for about four podcasts. Oh, how how long are they normally? They're between 45 and 60 minutes. Oh, okay. So they're quite long. So, it's long, Yeah, well... Listen? I mean, give them the attention span. <laughs> no, really. It's just genuine. This is what happens when you're given access to senior managers in universities late on a Friday afternoon. They're off the leash. <laughs> <laughs> One ginger beer later. <laughs> But it is, a, it, is a, it is a legitimate question. No, of course. I started doing them because after all, all these years living in the US, I was there at the point when college radio was dying and national public radio, which is great in many ways, was so focused on high production values that it would put massive amounts of time into a minute and a half's airtime. And there was no space for people to prognosticate, to think, to talk in an open-ended manner. And when podcasts came along, I thought, this is something I'd like to hear. Right. And people were modeling them on NPR, and I wanted something different. So I went to the university I was working at and said, because I went to Apple and said, can I do this? And they said, you've got to pay all this money, you've got to have an institution. So I went to the university I was working and said, would you pay for this and support it? And they said, no, fuck off. So I decided to pay for it myself and do it myself and make it a hobby. It doesn't appear on my CV, so I don't have to go through institutional review boards. I don't know what they're called here, maybe. In Britain, they're called ethics committees. Oh, yes. But oh, the ethics committee a, would have a field day right. with this. So I don't way, do it. I, I feel very vulnerable uh, and. Uh, do you feel hurt? Well, I, I feel touched. I feel vulnerable and maybe potentially oppressed. Yeah, well, you could be. Uh, I'm well in California. I count for lots of things because anybody over forty is actually considered vulnerable population. Any woman, really? any woman, anybody over forty, vulnerable population. Lots of others too. But anyway, I wanted to avoid all of that, and I realized if I paid for all this myself, I could do what I wanted. And if I didn't put it on my CV, I could do what I wanted, because it wasn't harming any school that I was affiliated with. And what I wanted to do was to have the opportunity for chance conversations to expand and go wherever they wanted. And I realized that no one can listen to this for more than an hour, but actually quite a lot of people can listen for an hour. And in terms of who listens, apart from, you know, I was saying to Ben earlier, it goes out in 50 countries, it's listened to in 50 countries. 50% 50 of the audience is in the United States. I don't get a lot of feedback other than surveillance spying feedback from Google. But the people who give feedback saying, I listen are nursing moms in the middle of the night, child on the breast, it's 4 a.m., want to listen to something interesting. And people on long commuting train or bus rides, or people in the gym, who want something that will in the case of the gym, force them not to move for 50 mm. minutes. You know, that mm. is the time I will dedicate to the gym. Or in the case of folks on public transport, the duration of their commute. So mm. they're the groups that have actually given feedback. It's also, they're used in teaching, all sorts of things. So that's the idea, that's the fantasy. So they're quite popular. That could be a stretch. <laughs> you, could, you could do five minute ones, but... 
I could, but I've done them. You know, there's a literary agent in LA who gets all her young adult authors to come on them. There are some musicians who've been on them, lots of activists, some people in law firms. All kinds of folks out there are actually interested in participating. Quite a lot of people in non-government organizations. And yeah, the question is how they can then be reused. And I've had opportunities to commodify or monetize these things, and I don't want to. So can I, given that it's still rolling, can I turn the tables on you and get you? Uh, you're here at Murdoch, but you're a professor at NYU. Not anymore. So what, what, are, you, what are your plans here at Murdoch? Right, Tony, well, I have, I, as I said before you arrived, Sarah, you are one of my bosses, so if anybody knows, it should be you. He doesn't like to be. I'm actually not, but anyway, not really? you can, you can, you can yeah, consider can, me a I boss. I have no, I have no authority over okay. you whatsoever. I am at Murdoch seven weeks a year, starting this year, in three different tranches, and one of those is <clears throat> teaching a course in your school. Correct. Under your supervision, I think. But my most obvious line manager is Ricky Kirsten, who is in the art school, who's the dean there. And I'm there to swan around and give occasional lectures in classes, mentor junior faculty, try to maybe help some junior people get grants, because they've got ideas and energy, and I have a CV. So with... <laughs> Beautiful combination, right? Their beauty and talent yeah. and my bit of paper. <laughs> we can get somewhere. Okay. And I also am 20% at Cardiff University uh, in Wales. And I'm about to become 50% at University of East Anglia in Norwich in January. And 30% at the Universidad del Norte in Barranquilla in Colombia. Which means I'll be... I'm, Giving, I'm leaving 140% on the pitch or whatever. You know those sports How people. Extraordinary. Say, How are you so going to do it? So you, you are one of these genuinely globe-trotting academics that frequent I sort polluter. of hear about but never seem to meet. I've frequent, met one. Frequent polluter. Frequent polluter. You, you, you are a no fixed address. Uh, itinerant. But you know the life of an academic is very Gosh, nomadic, isn't it? Well, like. I've been all over the place. Increasingly, I think it is. And I think in the United States, increasingly it is. But I think traditionally in Australia, it's not. I mean, people are rooted to their hometown. They, the idea of moving from, leaving, I, I'm from Sydney. Leaving Sydney for most people is just complete. People wouldn't even leave the Southern Shire, which is where I grew where up. Where did you grow up? Which one? Though? The Southern Shire. Yes, well, that's a very good reason to leave Sydney. Well. Okay, but I, most I, I should people, say somebody who was born in Leicester okay. regularly voted most boring city in Europe, so I'm allowed <laughs> to shit on Sutherland. Sorry. But this is the thing. Most people, the idea of leaving would just never enter. Yeah, yeah. Oh, when I became an academic, I thought yeah. I was going to sit in a room and write books, right? Right. No, this is not what happened at all. You end up travelling all around the world, being everywhere. I mean, it's yeah, you, You've had a non-conventional academic career. I, I, I don't know. Of, it's, it's well, quite, no, you've it's quite normal just, for well, an academic. But on the basis to travel of, around, do a lot of <coughs> keynote lectures, and I don't think projects. most academics a ever give a keynote lecture. Oh, right, I thought they so. all did that. No, I think <laughs> most of them don't even know what a keynote lecture is, <laughs> let alone being invited to give one. You 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 are hanging out with the one percent too much. 
The yeah. occupier's got to get into yeah, my mind. Yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> your mind well, so it was just so surreal because last night I was speaking to this, and it's a 12-hour difference between Perth and Florida. Sorry. I was speaking at the Game Tech conference there, which is a military conference, and I was speaking on serious games and so on. And I was, it was just so bizarre because it was like a disembodied experience because I couldn't see or hear the audience. I was just speaking out there. And it was just very weird because, you know, you're used to, you know, it's like you need that kind of audience feedback, don't you? Yeah, I find this that, has happened to me a couple of times. And I, just, I find that quite... I find it quite difficult yeah. because it felt great to me. <laughs> but who knows what really? it felt like to them. And you got no response at all, so you don't know. Was this sort of imagine... I may never know. Was this <laughs> the Imagineering people, some of the people who get money from Disney and Pentagon? Central no, Florida. I can't remember the name of the guys who organised it. It's called Game Tech Conference. They held it every year. Mm. I know the guys actually because they they publish quite a lot in the kind of games area. Mm. Um, they're quite well known in that field. Um, but it was just a very strange thing. Disembodied. But it was just this idea that you know you're twelve, you've got a day, you know you're a day ahead of these people. You can't actually see them, you can't hear them, but you're kind of just. So it's kind of the ultimate non-flipped classroom, I suppose. Um, I'm gonna, can I be very boring for the first time ever? Well, I'm going to be very boring because I'm going to ask regardless okay. of what you say. Um, I'm sorry to be so boring. Where does this fit in in terms of a discipline? Because when you say the games area, I don't know if you're an IT a person, a psychologist, uh, you could be a social, uh, sort of a political scientist. Explain I'm, yourself. I'm transdisciplinary. No, I'm just trying to get a By the way, no, she's massively senior. She's okay. massively senior I know you're to me and, and even to Ben. So he's being very ballsy at this moment. I'm very, no, I'm into flat hierarchy. But, no, but I kinda, I'm an English major. Um, and English then, lit. Yeah, oh, okay. I did English. And then I went into the film industry, I made films. And then I did my PhD in social sciences area, which was kind of big data, data analytics. And then my postdoc was in computer science department. And I've worked with computer oh, scientists. Gosh, that is seriously, that is multidisciplinary. <laughs> for several years. Right, so okay. I've moved from arts to sciences, and yeah, apparently that's quite that's unusual because normally people go from sciences to arts, which doesn't make sense to me. Well, I don't think normally people move at all. Yeah, that's right. But when they move, they tend to go the other way. So Is I've that been, so? Yeah, okay. apparently. Somebody, I've never looked at the stats on it. But well, most because cause if you think quite authoritatively well, said that, no, that, that was not, But it's not a mystery. I mean, if you look at the sciences here, right, we're, we're trying to set up new master's degrees across the university. So I've been talking to the people in VLS. And I, the, science, the big mega school, sciences. the mega science school that exists here now. Okay. They put all the science. Just acronyms are the animals. enemy of the podcast. Oh, well, the podcast is lost interest in the podcast. Just think, just, just think. Oh, Ben's decreed yeah. the podcast. Uh, well, well, just think farm animals. If anyone's animals. still listening, hang It's those big farm animals <laughs> playing those games we were talking about. Right, big yeah. animals. <laughs> no, but they've, and, they've got little animals. And yeah. but, no, but all the other sciences, they're all in there together. Right. Yeah, they're trying to set up masters. I've got to get a glass of water. Are you sure I can't get you another? I was hoping those guys are there because I've got my laptop <coughs> over there. Yeah, your laptop's probably I'm going to get a glass of water. Oh, I'll be back. Keep they're my book on it. Don't use any acronyms. So they're setting up all these masters degrees, right? But the idea, I say to them, well, our model is that you can come in with an undergraduate degree in any subject, right? And we will accept you in. And we have a variegated entry model. Maybe we'll give you some advanced standing later. In the sciences, though, it's, that's impossible. If you don't have a science undergrad, they're like, well, we can't possibly teach you because there's just so much assumed scientific knowledge. So it is that's difficult. Well, that's why I'm, I mean, I don't I, think it is. One of the most interesting 
jobs I had in a way was when I uh, helped set up the London Knowledge Lab at the University of London, and we, we brought together social scientists and computer scientists. And the weirdest thing was, was that obviously this didn't necessarily go completely smoothly, as you can imagine. But the main arguments that we had were around methodology, yeah. which was just kind of crazy because it was like, why? But um, but that was where the main battles. And the, the computer scientists would not move, you know, from their position of this is how we do it. Yeah. The social scientists, I mean, like one of the ladies there, she actually learned computer programming to right. try and you know come right. over to the other side as it were. Right. And they. It just—it really was quite tough. Yeah. But it was quite interesting. Our computer science, which was probably like the younger of the sciences, mm. was the more conservative one, and they were the ones that were basically like, "No, we won't let anyone in." Well, this I, is you not know, what we, I, I'm, we do. I'm not that surprised to hear it because, you know, in 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 my area, for example, I I I can declare to my colleagues. I'm a methodological pluralist, and people will be like, okay, so you know, some of them are more like economists or rat choice, some of them are, we have a phenomenologist, I didn't even know what phenomenology know was, and you know, I did philosophy, okay, you did philosophy, and you know, and soft scientific method, and a range of other things, whereas I imagine if you're in the science, computer science, or any of the other sciences, it's not really much wiggle room in terms of methodology, you, it's, it's yeah. scientific method, right? Scientific method. Is it, yeah. isn't it? There is the scientific method, but there yeah. are different methodologies, obviously, within that. But I actually, I think that my theory on it all is that you kind of you need the arts, the social sciences, and the sciences together, because the arts and humanities—that's where the problems and the questions kind of yeah, evolve. Yeah, we ask from. the right questions. The social, yeah. social sciences are where the methodologies are, and the sciences are where all the experimentation and the data comes from. So, in my feeling, there's kind of there's a bit of a continuum across the you know, the academic kind of no, subject no, I, areas, and you sense. kind of need all of them. And if you could link together the arts, social sciences, and sciences, well, if you can that make would that, be really powerful. Well, if you can make that work, I don't know if anyone's ever yeah, quite I'm managed to. I'm not sure how to do that. I'd have a few ideas. I should probably also go, but then you... No, it's okay. On that note, let's let's bring the podcast to a close. But Sarah, while I have you here, can I try to extract a promise from you that you will return to the podcast? Tell us a bit more about your background and also these ideas. Can I try that out? Yeah, I'm happy to. Thanks very much. Okay, thank you.